This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. The minority shouldn't be the first one at your church to broach topics of race and diversity. That should have already been done by the leaders such that the congregation is clamoring for diversity. And that makes it comfortable even if you're the only African-American or the only Korean or the only immigrant in the church. What's quick to listen about this week? Are we doing that still? Yeah, we are. We are having an episode well, this week, and we're going to talk to Joshua Dubois about the recent shootings of two African American men by police officers last week, as well as the shooting in Dallas of five police officers. And I think a lot of our readers and listeners care about what's going on, and they they have very strong emotional responses to what's been happening, but they don't exactly know how to respond in a constructive way. And then I think there has been conversation among African-American intellectual leaders saying, stop asking your black friends what they should do, what you stop asking your black friends what you should do, like figure it out for yourself. Stop looking to me to help you white people figure out what to do. And Joshua Dubois is going to come on and essentially say, Here's what you can actually do. So and you're, by at, the way, you're asking him what you should do. And by the way, that question is okay. Like, Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he last week he sent out basically like a form letter for people to send to their local police department mm-hmm. asking just some very basic questions about training and policies. And a lot of people latched on to that. So I thought that, that was helpful. And I think that he'll offer some more helpful or constructive and practical advice moving forward. For folks who don't know who Josh Dubois is, he was formerly the head of the White House's Office of Faith-Based Partnerships. And so he served there during the first administration and cool. part of the second. The first Obama administration. So this is an actually, actually a pretty interesting transition to who I'm having on the calling this week. Um, who are you having on the calling this week? Thanks for asking, Caitlin. Jamar Tisby. Um, he is the president and co-founder of Reformed African American Network. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you more about that interview after I tell you first that uh, we want to point out the calling is made possible by subscribers of Christianity Today magazine. Christianity Today magazine offers redemptive yet honest coverage of the people, events, and ideas shaping the church and culture. And as a s- subscriber each year, you get 10 award-winning print issues and a bunch of other stuff. I'm not going to repeat it all this time because the issues are really what you want. You also get access to the website. That's you nice. want the issues. You want the issues. Um, $10. It's just $10 for 10 issues. That's a year of subscription. Go to orderct.com slash thecalling to subscribe. If you subscribe, you'll be uh, supporting thoughtful, essential journalism and helping us to continue to produce episodes of The Calling every week. $10 is like if you went to Chick-fil-A today with your kids and you probably purchased like a shake or some fries on the side 
with your free chicken sandwich, uh-huh. that would have been like 10 bucks. For what? Like just fries and a shake? That's not much. It's not much at all. In fact... Oh, that's the point. <laughs> I get it now. <laughs> yes, Richard. It's not much at so all. So support your other favorite Christian company. Yeah. Christianity Today. Right. <laughs> yeah. So choose... Are you going to support Christianity Today doing thoughtful global journalism about the persecuted church? Are you going to indulge your flesh? Mm, I like that framing. That's good framing. I I hope it's clear to listeners that I'm kidding. We love Chick-fil-A. Oh, yeah, definitely. But you can be a Christian and not like Chick-fil-A. Those things are not. Uh, No. Mm. Especially if you did not grow up in the Midwest (laughs) or the South. Or the South. But let me tell you. Are they only in the Midwest and the South? As someone who grew up in California, you can only like one fast food joint, which is In and Out. That's true. And if you live in And they're also Christian. They they print Bible verses on their fry tins. Fry tins? <laughs> <laughs> on their fry holders. <laughs> on their fries cups. Or not. But let me tell you. Okay, I I've sometimes been like, how can you make chicken Christian? You know, I've kind of had this mean attitude toward chick-fil-a but but their customer service is bar none it's really good the best customer service i've ever experienced they win the surveys every year yeah yeah and though and they seem genuinely happy the people who work there seem like it's their pleasure like it is their pleasure to serve yeah it's weird though that that part the where they have to say in my pleasure that creeps me out but the rest Do they have is to nice. say that? It's no coincidence. They're all saying it. Because that's what the woman said to me when she refilled my drink this morning. Yeah, it's not like they all decided it was cool to say my pleasure. Hey, before we move on to Jamar, which I do want to get to eventually. Yeah, we should. I want to point out that before the next episode of this podcast comes out, what happens? Caitlin, doesn't your book come out? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I have a book coming out next Tuesday. Eventually, I'm going to have you on the calling. It's going to be soon. Yeah, I think it'd be fun. So stay tuned for that. But I need Morgan there as my unofficial publicist. No, Morgan has like happen. Morgan made this connection <laughs> with a guy at Q Commons. She was like, "Hey, you work for Made to Flourish. Caitlin has a new book coming out on work." Right. And I was so embarrassed. But, but this guy invited. <laughs> Why were you embarrassed? I felt like he would interpret it that I asked Morgan to do this. You know, that it was like indirectly self-promotional. But he invited me to come speak at this pastor's conference in October about the book because Morgan went up to him and said, hey, Caitlin has a book coming out on work. Yeah, because like... I should give you a cut of that. I'm serious. Because it wouldn't have been... Just a complimentary book. (laughs) Can I just say it's quite a year for this book to come out considering there are not one but two top 40 songs right now that use the word work. (laughs) That's true. And then Fifth Harmony. Fifth Harmony. Yeah. Did you make this happen? Yeah, I was like, look, Riri. I got a book on work coming out. You, you're going to work, 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 work. Yeah. On the podcast today, I'm really happy to have my friend Jamar Tisby on the show. We first met at Legacy Conference, and then we met up again at the Together for the Gospel to talk about all sorts of things. A lot of really timely things. We should point out that this was recorded, what, like... In April? Several months ago. Yeah, exactly. In April. And so parts of it may seem a little dated i don't know i'm just i feel it feels like in light of recent events we should say we didn't record this in light of recent events yeah but a lot of this stuff in fact all of this stuff i think is is pretty evergreen and um 
probably sadly applicable mm-hmm. to churches and to people uh, who are interested in this sort of thing and people who are not. So I would check it out. He's the president of Reformed African American Network, which is a network and like a blog site and a bunch of other things. Podcast. Check out the podcast. It's called Pass the Mic. Um, it's really good. I would highly recommend it if you're inter- interested in race and diversity in the church. They also put together a lot of previous articles and reflections for Christians looking for tools last week and mm-hmm. hashtagged it 24 hours of resources. Sweet. Cool. He's also a PhD student in history at the University of Mississippi. So he knows some things about history. Very yeah. smart guy. Very interesting interview. A lot to chew on. Here it goes. So I feel like I should say we have construction outside. I don't know if you people yeah, can hear that. Yeah, but I feel like not. that's like raw and gritty. Yeah. Urban, if you will. <laughs> that's the hip thing, right? That's yeah, urban. I think that's what I've heard. <laughs> that's what I've heard. I think actually rural church planning is becoming a oh, thing now. Oh, nice. Well, I was ahead of the curve. There yeah, you go. My my life was in rural. Was it really? In in my twenties, that's where that's where I lived in Helena, Arkansas, which is in the Delta. Wow. It was crazy. Yeah. Cool. It was very Was it like a lower class area? Yes, yes. The county we were in, Phillips County, um, at one point was the twentieth poorest county in the nation. And uh That's pretty poor. It's, it's been losing population steadily since the seventies. Wow. I mean, every kind of social ill you can think of. But rural poverty is different because in the city, so I worked in inner city Chicago for a summer during college, and they were poor folks. But the difference was you could walk out in the middle of the street, look east, and see skyscrapers. Uh, you knew you had five or six universities in the city. You had people driving SUVs, and there were limousines, and there was, you know, downtown, all accessible. Now, our, the kids, in the inner city, hardly ever got there, but they at least had a vision or a picture of what else was out there. In a rural environment, in the town we were in, no building was over three stories tall. Uh, some of our kids, when we took them on field trips and whatnot, had never been on an escalator. So, so you don't even have the picture besides TV of what a different life really looks like. So at the at the beginning of every podcast, we ask one uh, particular question, which is, how would you describe or define your calling? I think calling in general is burden. Calling is is a burden, and it's amazing. I think I think even non Christians have a calling in that sense that you have a burden for some sort of issue, people group event, whatever it might be. Um, so your burden might be raising your kids um, and investing your whole self into that. Your burden might be working for immigrants and making sure that they get justice and sustenance and everything like that. I think that calling is clarified, and sometimes you're given a new one as a believer. And so I think my calling has always been in the area of racial justice, but I couldn't, I couldn't have probably articulated that uh, for most of my life. It's probably been only in the past, I'd say, five years or so since uh, moving to Mississippi, uh, starting seminary, and getting involved with some things that that calling has been clarified. And I think, I think my calling is to build awareness around racial and ethnic issues as well as work for racial integration, particularly in church congregations. Can you tell me a little bit more about the time that that calling was clarified? 
I came to Jackson, Mississippi in 2011 to actually finish seminary. I had done one year of seminary at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando uh, several years prior. Then I came to Jackson in 2011 to RTS Jackson to finish up. And I started working in the admissions office that summer, even before I started classes. And so everybody in the admissions office has your typical admissions duties, but Based on your background and kind of your passion and your interest, your quote-unquote calling, uh, you can also take on sort of a, an additional specific project. So I said, well, I'm African-American. Let me work on African-American recruitment because there weren't a whole bunch of us at the seminary. And so over that summer, I kept just kind of brainstorming, coming up with all these random ideas. So I'd go to the uh, director of admissions, Brian Galt, and I'd tell him all these wacky and crazy ideas. And to his credit, he never called me crazy to my face. <laughs> he encouraged me to continue to be creative and eventually basically said, well, why don't we take all these ideas and put them under one umbrella? And that's what became the African-American Leadership Initiative. And God just, you know, there, there, are, there are times and seasons in your life where God lines up everything to get done what he wants to get done, and you happen to be there to see it, and it's a, and it's a really condensed thing, and you just feel like a movement of yeah. the Spirit. So, so that's what happened with AALI. We were able to mobilize not only students, but also get it passed at the, the board level, board of trustees level. There was just a lot of interest and momentum early on that was encouraging to us. And it was right about that time as well, it was fall 2011, that the, I, I had the idea for the Reformed African American Network. Um, so I had gone up to Chattanooga and um, uh, visited the, the church New City Fellowship, which is a Presbyterian church in America congregation. It's intentionally multi-ethnic and has been before it was cool. I mean, this, this church was founded back in the early 80s. Uh, by a white guy from uh, Randy Neighbors from New Jersey. And it, it was an amazing time because there were about 10 African-American seminary students who were going to reform seminaries, and it felt like a family reunion. I mean, I'd never met them before, but we had all this in common in terms of theology and culture. So it was on the way back from that trip that I said, we need to do something to keep this fellowship going. And that's where the idea for the Reformed African-American Network was birthed. So those are things are happening pretty much simultaneously, and just one thing leading to another, meeting different people, talking to different people, seeing that there's there's already this stirring that the Holy Spirit has, has, um, you know, created within people to think about and talk through issues of race and ethnicity from a biblical standpoint, and we were just, you know, we were there just to provide a mechanism and an outlet for that. Yeah. So the nature of what you do and the nature of the subject matter, it seems like that wouldn't be like a straightforward task. Like it's not like evangelism where everyone's like, that sounds cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, this is the kind of thing that people push back on. Mm -hmm. What was like the first experience you had with that? Wow. Students, other students at the seminary who had learned from pastors and speakers and theologians, they admire that racial reconciliation was a social issue and not a gospel issue. And that's still sort of a subtext in, in all of this work. But it was much more overt um, back in 2011, 12, 13. And so you would get folks, peers, classmates, um, and they wouldn't often say it directly to you. 
you would just kind of hear about it through the grapevine that why are, why is RTS doing this African American leadership initiative thing? Are they going liberal? Is this is this you know some you know socialist agenda type of thing? And that was new to me. I, I had not come from context where there was this much opposition um, on an ideological basis to talking about racial reconciliation. Um, so so that was. That was uh, a chastening experience for me. Uh, Do people interpret what you're doing as some form of affirmative action? Like, people use that phrase to me a lot. Yeah. In a really, like, pejorative way. Especially when you talk about the whitenesses of... The white whitenesses. <laughs> the whiteness of conferences yeah. and congregations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, leadership. When you talk about uh, being deliberate and hiring people mm-hmm. of different perspectives and yeah. and yeah. just backgrounds like that is something that people say to me a lot yep they do they do think um some aspects of what we're doing is affirmative action so for instance aali african-american leadership initiative one of our goals one of our two primary goals is, is to recruit more african-americans to the seminary and that's quite intentional and it's such a such a tragedy really that affirmative action has become pejorative among a large group of people because it's such an eloquent phrase affirmative <laughs> yeah. action yeah it sounds good i mean what's wrong with that <laughs> yeah. what's wrong with affirming yeah. actions um and so but it's 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 a head in the sand mentality to think that that's a pejorative or negative kind of movement now there are wrong ways to recruit minorities and basically the the wrong way to recruit minorities is to set some arbitrary quota and say we must have this number or this percentage, which really is not based in anything factual or or logical. It's just whatever aesthetics. Uh, another wrong way to do affirmative action is to say, well, we just want people of color, no matter what their qualifications. Mm-hmm. And so you get a bunch of underqualified folks. I will say as a caveat, though, we got to expand our definition of qualification. So if we don't have in our uh, seminaries, let's say folks who had some stellar undergraduate degree or this really strong academic background, what else do they bring to the table that might be valuable? Which is the value of diversity, is that we all bring different gifts and strengths to the table. And it can be different. So you could be a straight-A student and able to parse Greek and Hebrew verbs like no other, but if somebody else grew up in the inner city and that's an area where we think the gospel needs to be spread, well, how do you evaluate those two on an absolute scale? It's it's very hard. You need both. So anyway, but the idea of affirmative action is necessary. So for instance, if you look at history, when we were in the heyday of school desegregation, when the laws were being passed, 54 Brown v. Board, 55 Brown v. Board 2, uh, 69, some laws that basically said nobody's doing this fast enough, so let's make it required. You have to do it now. When those laws were being passed, there were massive debates that nobody in our generation remembers. There were massive town hall meetings and community meetings uh, about busing. Do we bus white kids and black kids to different schools? And the idea was desegregation wasn't enough. You needed integration. So desegregation is the negative side. Okay, we're taking away the strictures. Integration is the positive side. What affirmative actions are we taking to make sure people don't remain separate? Well, by and large, that battle was lost. 
people said, okay, we'll acquiesce on desegregation since the federal law is already passed. But everybody, well, I should say mostly middle-class suburban whites, pushed back on integration, what they would call forced integration. And the result is a segregated uh, segregated cities, segregated schools, uh, almost as bad or worse than before those laws were passed. So the idea is that affirmative action is necessary because in our natural selves, we will not tend to integrate. We won't give up power. We won't share space. It acknowledges our depravity in a way. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned you're focused on congregations. What are you trying to encourage? What do you think that congregations should be doing sort of actively or even just thinking through as they consider these questions of racial diversity? One thing that I've noticed as a person who's involved in these discussions just related to church in general is that when you start talking about how to create a multicultural congregation, there are so many yes buts, uh-huh. like a million of them yeah. from yes, but black people appreciate their own churches. Uh-huh. I'm, I'm curious, like, um, what's the, we can say this without a but, what's the thing that churches should first and foremost be thinking through and doing? You have to build awareness. So if I am uh, looking at a predominantly white church, and as a minority, thinking through whether this would be a comfortable, welcoming place for me. I don't want to come in to a church where the pastor or the church leaders say, well, some folks in the congregation are, are here with racial reconciliation. They, they, they really don't like it, the idea. They think it's a Marxist, liberal, social agenda and shouldn't be in the church. But there's these other folks who really are clamoring for it. And there's a bunch of folks in the middle who aren't quite sure what to make of it. I want, I desire for churches that are predominantly white right now, but looking to become more diverse. Do the, do the groundwork first. You've got to pull the weeds. You've got to break up the soil. You've got to cultivate the land that would make it amenable to planting the seeds uh, that would bear fruit of diversity. So in other words, what that looks like is the minority shouldn't be the first one at your church to broach topics of race and diversity. That should have already been done by the leaders, and it should have been done in such a way that they're shepherding the congregation through those issues. So I think, number one, churches that are predominantly white need to start talking about diversity, and they need to begin to build a, a cultural vocabulary such that the congregation is clamoring for diversity as they have built awareness. And that makes it comfortable even if you're the only African American or the only Korean or the only immigrant in the church. When, when you have people who have the right mindset, you can get through. It's, you know, there's going to be some uncomfortable parts, but you can still get through. So that's what I would say is first, cultivate a hunger for diversity by building awareness about the dynamics of race and diversity. Right. What is, what is your involvement in the local church been like? So I go to a church called Redeemer Church, which is an intentionally multi-ethnic church, a Presbyterian church in in the city of Jackson. And so uh, that has been extremely affirming because everything from the music to our senior minister is black to, uh, you know, a large proportion of the congregation is not only African-American, but a lot of different other ethnicities as well. 
that's my first church like that. My entire Christian church experience has been me being one of probably less than 10 black people at most. So I was, I, I came to faith in high school through the ministry of a wonderfully loving and white homogenous youth group. And I started going to the church um, that the youth group was attached to, which is sort of a broadly evangelical Baptist church. And again, one of only a handful. And then in college is where I started learning about Reformed theology, and my first Reformed church was a Dutch Reformed church, and I was the absolutely only <laughs> African-American in that congregation. And people were nice and friendly, but, you know, I was a bit of an anomaly. You know, you could see people kind of looking at you out of the corner of their eyes like, wow, <laughs> who's that? And then um, I went to a, a black missionary Baptist church for several years while I lived in the Delta, and that in itself was an experience. I mean, you're talking to a congregation of about 20 people, average age, probably 65 or so. Um, but a, a preacher who who preached and taught the Bible. Um, it was as close to exegetical preaching as I found in this really tiny rural town. And uh, that that was a, a you know, very affirming in its own way. But then there were other parts that I missed about, you know, being at a larger church or, or a church with more kinds of diversity. And then went to a different church where, again, I was one of maybe three African Americans. And it wasn't until I came to Jackson that I was like, wow, you, you can have yeah. uh, a, a church with racial and ethnic diversity. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What, um, as far as uh, living out your calling... And you, you sort of, you had it clarified. Yeah. After that point, I'm wondering if there was like any crucial moment where you doubted that calling. Rand has always been, I've always gone back and forth on the ministry because I, I remember distinctly, it was October 2011 when Rand began with just a Facebook group, a Facebook page. And I remember having created the page, filled everything out, and I was about to press enter to make it go live. And I just had this sense that this thing was going to have a life of its own once once it got going. And I wasn't at all committed to just, you know, following along and, and seeing where it led. I I wanted it to be small, side project, nothing you know, too intrusive on what I was already doing. But I had a sneaking suspicion that it wouldn't turn out that way. So I pressed enter and and so it began. And it's been true. It it has taken on a life of its own despite my best efforts at being a terrible leader or or 
writer or voice in this thing. God has continued to to bless it with growth and and with recognition, and I, I think it's been helpful to some folks. But there are certainly it's it's always been on the side. So I've always been, you know, a student and working at jobs that pay money, real money. And so it's always been a difficult balance trying to steward this ministry the way it deserves, but it's never been my central focus. And so there's always those moments when you're like, can I do this? Is it worth it? Can I, is there someone else who can, you know, really throw themselves into this and take it to the next level? But God has me here and I'm very content being part of this ministry. Yeah, I I can relate to that. The the idea of like having a side project that you love and you're excited about. And uh, you always think, I, I feel like I had several moments where like, I thought I should quit. I just, I was ready to quit. I was like, I even set deadlines like <laughs> the next, in, the, yeah. in a month, I'm going to quit. And then a thing would happen. Like something would happen. Thing always happens, right? Yeah. Like there's the, there's these like very substantial things that happen that give you hope to Absolutely. go forward, and it's kind of amazing how God sustains those things, right? Right. As you're doing them, it's that it's that burden again. It's that calling where I mean, for me and Rand, this burden has only really increased, and God has graciously shown me all the potential that this ministry has to. Um, you know, selfishly to sort of alleviate that burden or scratch that itch personally, but also that he's creating a burden among others. And and that's really what keeps you in it is the fact that there are people who are benefiting from the ministry, who enjoy what you're producing, and you don't want to let them down. So I want to talk about some negative things in a minute. But first, I want to hear like, what are those positive things that have kept you going. Well, you just put like a, a dark cloud over I know. the positive things. That's no, how that's you it. keep people listening. <laughs> people are going to tune out and be like, you're just talking about good stuff yeah, the whole yeah, time? Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. The good stuff has been, I mean, it's, uh, so the Reformed African American Network, we're basically a blog site, raanetwork.org, randnetwork.org, and we're a podcast, Pass the Mic. And Which is amazing. A really good podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, people should look up Pass the Mic. Thank you. Just look it up and look. Forgiven that plug that which which I was going to have to do uh-huh. later. Um, so it's it's those two outlets. One, I mean, a lot of what we do is simply building awareness, defining terms, um, bringing to light different issues that particularly people in the majority don't see. So so the 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 positives are these: our core audience is African Americans who self-identify as Reformed, which is a very small group. Yeah. These these are Black folks who know the terminology, know the framework of Reformed theology and say, yes, I subscribe to that. And so that's our core. Uh, the next, if you think of like concentric circles, the next circle would be white Reformed folks. And then probably the third circle would be just sort of white evangelicals, uh, white and black evangelicals, really. So I think for that core audience of uh, African-Americans who self-identify as Reformed, I think a win is that we, we have good name recognition. You know, I'm pretty sure that, that folks who would put themselves in that category have heard of us, have accessed the resources. You know, maybe they find it, some find it more helpful than others, but they've at least heard of us. It's really exciting, though, with that second circle of folks, white Reformed folks who are curious about racial reconciliation and diversity, don't quite know where to start. And RAN serves as that touch point. And so I get lots of comments saying, wow, I'd never thought of that perspective before, or I've heard that argument, but I never understood it until you guys put it this way. And I'm starting just, and this is just recently in the past couple of months, to hear more and more stories about, you know, my 
my father was, you know, pretty much a staunch racist. And I was able to bring up some issues and articulate them to him in a way that he finally started to understand. Or, you know, my mother-in-law or a friend at work. And, you know, the ice is starting to melt around people's resistance to racism, partly because of things they've learned and been equipped with through through the network. So that's incredibly encouraging. One thing that I appreciate about RAN and and about the podcast in particular is that you guys have like an air clearing effect. Like you will clear the air, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you will talk openly about controversy, about things you're upset about. Because I know that at CT, at where I used to edit at Christ and Pop Culture, uh-huh. you often spend a lot of time talking about what you're going to say. You know what I mean? You spend a lot of time going like, how how should we say this? What should we say? What is most valuable for people to hear? And that's all really helpful. Uh-huh. But like, I feel like sometimes it's just really valuable to like hash things out, especially as a person who like, <laughs> who like does that in real life. Like uh-huh. when he, when he has to think about something, he doesn't go into it. I don't go into a room and think about uh-huh. it by myself. I, I talk about it with everyone I know. Right, right, right. So yep. what inspired that approach on the podcast? <laughs> Uh, it's probably a lot less deliberate than people would hope. Um, <laughs> we don't plan ahead very well, so <laughs> we just get on there and talk. But we have been intentional lately, uh, more intentional about trying to be responsive and in dialogue, frequent, constant dialogue with our listeners or our blog readers. And so what we're trying to do is be responsive to conversations people are having and situations that people are in and questions that people are having. So we've, we've put out on Twitter or on Facebook, hey, what questions do you have around race and ethnicity or black culture or whatever? And, and we just try to respond to those. And we do so, I think the longer we do it, the more open we are, which could be a positive or a negative. I don't know. <laughs> Certainly the older I get and the longer I do this is just facing the reality that almost everybody is going to have a problem with something you say. So you may as well just say what you think and um, just be able to back it up when you get challenged because you probably will. So I think we're trying to cultivate um, that ongoing dialogue with our listeners and with our blog readers. And I think we're also trying to just speak honestly. So we really view ourselves as a way. So for African-Americans listening or reading, a lot of times their response is amen. I've been saying that. Finally, somebody else who who's who's putting it out there. I'm not crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For for whites, it's much more of an aha moment. Like, wow, okay, that's a new perspective. That's that's helpful for me to to try to understand. So we we we're we're very conscious of being that kind of space. And I think the more honest you can be, the more helpful it is. How do you handle discussions that you know within the reformed, even within reformed African Americans, there are disagreements? How do you handle those? discussions and where do you sort of like draw lines and say this is not what we're about so so this is this is sort of insider information um but but so so through obviously african-american culture is not monolithic i mean despite what you know the television or the movies would say there's an enormous amount of diversity and the fact is most african-americans do not live in the inner city are not in high poverty situation. 
but that's not the narrative you get in the broader culture. Uh, so there already is incredible diversity, and that's something that we have to think about and contend with. But there is something to be said for solidarity. So African Americans are still only about 13% of the national population. And for all of our diversity internally, we do share a history. We do share a common background of race-based chattel slavery, marginalization due to legalized segregation through Jim Crow laws, ongoing forms of, of systemic and institutional injustice. We do have that shared experience. And so, and so there is something to be said for linking arms with folks who understand that experience from, from the inside. Uh, so I make a distinction. There are all kinds of arguments and debates that, that black folks need to have amongst each other. It gets really taken out of context when you have those arguments and debates in public around other races and ethnicities who don't understand, uh, African American experiences the same way. It's uh, so, so to be concrete, you'll get a black person who says something that, you know, a lot of whites would agree with, but in general, a lot of blacks would disagree with. But then you'll find the one black who agrees with the, the white folks and folks will hold him up and say, see here, black people do agree with this perspective on whatever politics or race or economics. And they'll hold up that, you know, one person or small group of people not realizing it's the exception that proves the rule and and not realizing that doing that inadvertently sort of diminishes some some you know some some solidarity is good some solidarity is bad we should not continually link arms about things that are unbiblical so you 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 ask where do you draw the line that's where you draw the line you know <laughs> there there so okay here's another controversial topic black lives matter where do you draw the line there some people would draw it 50 feet before you ever get to the topic and it's toxic and don't want anything to do about it because you know it's 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 an agenda that is completely anti-biblical well that's patently wrong i think i make a distinction between black lives matter in principle and black lives matter as the organization and so in principle the idea that black lives matter as the media has said that's incontrovertible you know, it's 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 the it's the imago day. It's Genesis one, twenty six through twenty eight. It's it's being made in the image and likeness of God, and it's an acknowledgement of historical and present realities that black lives have not mattered in the same way that other peoples have. Um, and so, I think that's 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 not only acceptable; that's something we should affirm. Now, if you look on the website for Black Lives Matter and you look at their sort of platform, there are some wretched, heinous, anti-biblical ideas on there. Um, particularly troublesome is this, uh, they basically call the nuclear family a Western individualistic idea, and they want to bust that up. Now, I think the sentiment behind that is sort of, the more African or non-Western idea that it takes a village to raise a family. And so I think what they're talking about is, is bringing back the dignity and the nobility of, you know, grandmamas and grandpas and, and cousins and aunts and uncles all being part of a community, um, including the local community that's not biologically related of raising children. But the way they put it and to, and to, and to, and to put that over against the nuclear family. Right. 
that's something we can't get down with as believers. So, so I draw the line. If it, if it contra- contradicts the Bible, I'm not going there. Uh, I may do so accidentally, unwittingly, mm-hmm. but Lord forgive me. If you were to get in a time machine, travel back in time, wow. talk to yourself, okay, a younger version of yourself, what would you tell him? What advice would you give him? Leave it all on the field. Um, like, don't be afraid. Like, for me, it, it means not being afraid to, to, to throw yourself fully into something. I think with me, there was this hesitation to fully commit to whatever I was into, whether that was because, you know, I thought there might be something better around the corner and I didn't want to get too invested, or really, oftentimes it was because of a fear of failure. And if if I committed myself fully to this thing and it didn't work out, what would that say about me? What would it mean for my identity? And a lot of that, of course, is not being secure in your identity in Christ, that you are no less a son or daughter of the king for having tried and failed than for having tried and succeeded. He doesn't, he doesn't evaluate us on those kinds of scales. You're already loved. You're already accepted. You already have the inheritance. You cannot lose it because it doesn't depend on what you do. It depends on what Christ has already done. And so he keeps you. He, by his sovereign grace, gives us faith in Christ, and that truly is enough. But to live that and believe that and to risk based on that truth is is a whole different story. So I think for me in my 20s uh, it was always, you know, man, I had these big plans and grand ideas, but no, I'm not going to try that because it might not work. It's okay. <laughs> try it anyway. And, and, you know, when things like African-American Leadership Initiative and Reformed African-American Network, those were instances where by God's grace, I just went for it. And it's turned out pretty well so far, not perfectly, but certainly better than I would have imagined on the front end. Yeah. What do you hope that those things turn into ultimately? Like what's the five-year plan for those things in your mind? To me, AALI, what we need to do. So right now, the way it works with like cultural awareness and racial diversity is typically folks who are already in ministry. And for some reason, this gets on their radar. I want to back that up. Um, I mean, obviously, I want people to be born and raised uh, with cultural awareness. But in terms particularly of our pastors, I want them to get this stuff in seminary. I want them to come out with a framework for uh, racial and ethnic diversity, uh, awareness and sensitivity, um, perspective on the history. I want them to be equipped with that while they're being trained and not on the job training, which ends up hurting a lot of people and slowing the process down, really. So AALI is part of that process of backing up that education into the formal seminary experience. So what I hope is that it becomes a formal concentration that that you can get, you know, it'll be on your diploma and, and you can get credit for it. I hope that it leads to diversifying the faculty and staff and seeing people of a lot more different ethnicities in there. And I hope that it helps in a broader way uh, really refute that uh, pushback that I get early and often that racial diversity is a social issue, not a gospel issue. You know, so I hope we we as Christians start to see this as central to the gospel because reconciliation is central to the gospel. RAN is a little bit trickier uh, because we have a, a, a ministry of information, really, you know, and uh, how do you measure that? How do you measure effectiveness? How do you how do you define when you've achieved your goal? Because there's always more to learn and there's always more 
to share. So, uh, you know, I think we would continue building awareness. I think something we can be more concrete about is is where the Reformed African American Network, and so the network aspect, I'd like to capitalize on. Uh, I think we're doing pretty much everything we can virtually and online. What I'd love is for people to get face-to-face more and to have an actual network of, of folks with whom you can shake hands and give a hug or a dap or, you know, whatever. You can hear their voices and see their see the look in their eyes. So creating opportunities for that to occur. Um, because to be quite honest, especially if you're African-American in reform circles, what you need more than anything is opportunities to gather with other black folks who believe the same things spiritually and doctrinally, but also understand your culture and where you're coming from, where you don't have to explain yourself. Why is your hair this way? Tell me about the black church. Tell me about, you know, what it's like with, you know, encounters with police, whatever. You don't have to explain your experience or your existence. And you can just kind of be who you are. Uh, So that, more than anything that I've seen, is what leads to burnout among black folks at predominantly white churches. They just don't have a big enough or a tight enough group where where they can be that way. I am torn about whether the reformed movement is doing really good in this area uh-huh. or just kind of fine. You know, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of denominations that are really focused and a lot of uh, movements and networks that are really focused on the multicultural movement. And the, the reform movement is not, but it is really focused on the gospel. And I take what you say at face value that the implications of the gospel is racial diversity. It's the you look like the kingdom, you embrace one another and the image of God in one another. Right. So the optimist in me says, if that's true, if reformed movement is focused more than others, maybe on the on the gospel itself, shouldn't that have that impact? Yeah, the problem is we are so insular. We're almost afraid to learn from a non-reformed and b non-Christian sources, and so the reality is when it comes to sort of principles and practicalities of diversity, we are eons behind lots of other place. I mean, you look at colleges and places of higher education, you look at sports, you look at lots of different fields, and they've done incredibly well diversifying their workforce or or their membership or whatever it might be. The church is eons behind that. And I think part of it is we don't use our reformed theology for what it's good for, which is to give us a grid to wade into places where we don't always agree. I think the potency of Reformed theology is you have clear boundaries and clear guidelines about what is biblical and what is unbiblical. Therefore, I can go into the secular outlet and evaluate critically what I agree with and what I don't agree with. And since we believe God is sovereign, that all truth is God's truth, I don't mind if a secular outlet comes up with something really good to help push diversity, and I'll use it, and I'll redeem it in light of the gospel. But I think we cloister ourselves, um, and, and we're afraid that like our, our Christianity is going to be tainted by being around sinners and unbelievers, and I don't know, it just seems like Jesus wasn't afraid of that, right, right. <laughs> and, and in fact— when he calls us to be salt and light, you cannot do that unless you are among 
people who are in the dark, if you will. I think we can be a lot bolder and, and then we can learn a lot more because good work is already being done and the church has been slow to catch on to that. You've been listening to The Calling. Jamar Tisby is the president and co-founder of the Reformed African American Network. He's also the co-host of Pass the Mic, a podcast on iTunes. You can look it up. It's really good. Check it out. Uh, He's also a PhD student in history at the University of Mississippi. You can follow him on Twitter at Jamar Tisby. That's J-E-M-A-R-T-I-S-B-Y. Remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps us a lot. The Calling is produced by Cray Allred. Theme music by Lee Rosevere, used under Creative Commons 4.0. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.